John and Lisa, Samantha, Cody, just last summer. Carl and Karen, youngsters, still in love. There's Horace and Trudy. Jan and Lorraine. This is the most recent couple in our church to get married. They are Anna and Jordan. Many of you know who they are. And... uh, Okay. Thanks, Dwayne. That's good. Last weekend, I got to perform the wedding ceremony of Anna and Jordan. That was just last week, Saturday. Um, Wedding ceremonies are great fun to do as, as a pastor, and I'm often struck by what a privilege it is for me to be able to stand right there with the bride and groom and actually marry them. I get to do it. It's remarkable. And weddings are a lot of fun, and there's celebration and a lot of laughing and joy in it. But, sorry, when we stop and think for a moment, in the, middle of the, in the middle of it all, when all the fun stuff is going on, when you stop and think for a second, you realize that at the heart of the celebration, something very significant is going on. Two people are making a life and death commitment to one another for as long as they live. Here's what Anna and Jordan said to one another. I love you. 
Today I give myself to you as your husband, as your wife. I promise to love you, honor you, respect you, and cherish you. I promise to care for you, support you, and encourage you to the best of my ability. I commit myself to your spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being. I will do all I can to help you become all that you can be, and I will remain faithful to you for as long as we both shall live. Now, when we make a commitment like that, in the moment, we envision kind of the simple sharing of life together, sharing a home, probably raising children together. But a bride and groom, when they make vows like that, they're saying a whole lot more. They are saying to each other, look, I don't know what life will bring. None of us know. There will be lots of good, but there may also be profound pain. And if you get really sick for a long time, I will be there loving you through it. If we experience a hardship that threatens to overwhelm us, I will be there. I will not bail on you, no matter how hard it gets. For the rest of my life, no matter what, I will be your husband. I will be your wife, only yours. I will always love you. I will always be your friend. You can count on my care and my commitment to your joy and to your good, no matter what. That is an astonishing thing to say to one another. And it's made more astonishing by the fact that no one, no one on their wedding day knows what they're committing to. They're just saying that once they do realize, once they're into it and they realize what a commitment they've made, they'll keep their commitment. They're committing themselves to something and to someone to the point that it'll take death itself to stop it. Marriage is not, not for the faint of heart, let me tell you. And yet, in the experience of a great many marriages, instead of an ever-deepening love and friendship, the opposite seems to be happening. I mean, we know some of the stats of marriage in our day, and that marriage among Christians, that the divorce rate among Christians is not much different than the world at large. And even when there's no divorce, our marriages sometimes are not always the springs of joy that we hoped for. And some of you this morning may feel very acutely the gap between the dreams of your wedding day and the reality that you find yourself in. You might wonder, why do we argue all the time? Why can't we seem to communicate? Does he even love me? Do I love him? Did I marry the right person? Maybe you're wondering, will my marriage even make it? Well, today in our study of Ephesians, we come to one of the places in Scripture where God has spoken specifically and directly to husbands and wives. And he speaks a word of, of no compromise challenge, but he couches it in this whole word of promise and grace that is the book of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians, we have said, is all about God's reconciling us to relationship with himself and with each other in Jesus. God has made us his children in Christ, and he has made us one with each other in Christ. And this dynamic of reconciled relationships works itself out concretely and specifically in the household. From chapter 5, verse 22, which is where we started today, through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul addresses three relationships. Marriage, the parent-child relationship, 
and the master-slave relationship, which in the context of the Ephesian world was a household relationship. See, if the gospel does not impact us at home, it is useless to us. If our faith doesn't show up at home, it's a sham everywhere else. John Stott says, what good is peace in the church if there's not peace at home? And if we as a church are serious about prioritizing things like children and family and building faith at home, then we need these passages. And we're going to spend, uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks in these next three texts about husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves. Who is this passage for? Surprising though it is, it is for you who are single. Because the principle that's being unpacked in this text, the principle of mutual submission, is a basic relationship principle. It's a universal Christian obligation for us. It's a calling no matter what the relationship is we're talking about. Friendship, parent-child, co-worker, neighbor, whatever. So if you're a single, uh, this is for you. If you've been married for decades and have a good marriage, this is for you. So that you can finish well and kind of sprint strong to the finish line. If you've been married for decades but maybe lack intimacy and closeness, you've learned, you've learned to live together and to function in marriage, but you can't really say, you know, there's a lot of depth and love in our marriage. This passage is for you. This passage is for you who are married but maybe for whom a new dynamic has been introduced. You have a new child or teenagers in the house, or somebody's just retired. This is for you. It's for you this morning who find yourself in tension, and for whom marriage is a struggle, and you know that things are not as they should be, and you don't know what to do about it. Michael and Rachel, this is for you, and for anyone not married, but hoping or planning to be someday. So let's, let's listen to God speak in his word today. Um, the text for today, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, is not a standalone passage in Scripture. So let me set up the clip, as it were, by putting it in context biblically. When I work with couples that are about to get married, first thing we do is we look at the Scripture, and we look at three Bible texts, and this is one of them. We're going to look at the other two, glance at them quickly. We won't unpack them fully, but highlight something as it bears on this Ephesians passage. And we're going to start with Genesis chapter 2. After affirming the goodness of the creation that God has just made over seven days, God says that one thing is not good. He says it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And God takes a rib from the body of Adam, Adam and uses it in the creation of Eve. And when Adam sees her, this is what he says. Ah, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then this commentary at the end of the chapter. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife... We're both naked and we're not ashamed. Here you have woman given to man to be a helper, not just an inferior, but an associate, a co-worker. Okay, man cannot, should not have dominion over the earth, as God said in Genesis chapter 1, by himself. He needs a partner. He needs a companion. 
And the picture here is that a man leaves one family center and begins another by holding fast to his wife. And then this phrase, which is the central principle in biblical marriage, by the way, the two shall become one flesh. That line is the underpinning of how the Bible approaches marriage. Jesus goes back to it. Paul goes back to it. The two shall become one flesh. Now, this is, this is a sexual term. But in sex, the two literally become one. But that is a symbol as well for what is true generally in marriage. It's kind of a picture of the fundamental unity, the joining together of two lives, two hearts, two spirits, two sets of dreams, two pairs of commitments. No longer was Adam merely an individual. Eve was part of him, and the two were one flesh. We joke about the better half. It's no joke. Your spouse really is the other half of you. So Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 2 we've just looked at, is the starting place before coming to Ephesians chapter 5. Male and female, together being one flesh. The other scriptural stop along the way is Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about divorce. This is a great passage. Um, here the religious leaders kind of are coming up to Jesus, trying to trip him up on a point of law, and this is what they ask him, whether it's consistent with Old Testament law for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Now Jesus, in his answer, kind of goes past them, goes back beyond the law to the creation story, because the law was given to manage life in the reality of sin and brokenness. And by the way, the, the Old Testament law around divorce elevated and strengthened the position of the woman in terms of the culture that she found herself in. But Jesus goes back before that and says, haven't you read God's original intent behind marriage? He says, he created the male and female, Genesis 1. Therefore, a man shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he emphasizes that again. So they are no longer two, but one. Okay, Pharisees, you get it? They're not two. They're one. Then he says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And then Jesus says, so whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty strong word from Jesus. What is he driving home here? That divorce was never part of God's plan. Why not? Because the two are no longer two. They're one. Divorce is not two people separating because it didn't work out or we weren't compatible. Divorce is not a separating of two, but it's a tearing apart, a breaking in half of what is one. And why is sexual unfaithfulness the, the one concession that Jesus makes? Because where there has been sexual adultery, becoming one flesh with someone who's not your spouse, the divorce then formalizes what in essence has already happened. Okay, the marriage relationship has already been ruptured. So divorce makes it official. Now Jesus' point here is not to make rules or to speak with condemnation to the divorced person. What he's saying to the Pharisees is marriage, marriage is such a big deal. The fact that God makes two, one flesh, is of such enormous significance that you had better realize the enormous destruction that divorce causes. 
and the reality behind the call for sexual faithfulness in marriage. It's like he's saying to the religious leaders, you're asking me if it's okay to divorce your wife because you bur- she burnt your toast? Do you have any idea what marriage is? I mean, no one who has the slightest clue about marriage would ask me the question that you just asked me, Jesus is saying. And at the center of Jesus' understanding around marriage is the fact that two have become one flesh. And that is fundamentally what marriage is. Not a social contract, not an agreement for two people to do life together. It is a joining. It is a uniting. And the scripture says that God joins them together. Now we can come to Ephesians 5. And to this point in Ephesians, um, Paul has said, God has made you his children in Christ. Uh, This has implications for you in terms of unity and your purity of life. Live now in the unity of community that is the church. Renew your minds. Speak in love to one another. In fact, walk constantly in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. And now today, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That phrase is the starting point for everything that follows now up to chapter 6, verse 9. And Paul will unpack what mutual submission looks like in marriage and in parenting and in master-slave or work relationships, perhaps. But the sentence itself, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, also closes everything that Paul has said from chapter 4, verse 17. In other words, this is not just a marriage verse. This is a basic Christian living verse. Like I said, mutual submission is a universal Christian obligation. Philippians 2. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Mutual submission is what is described in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. People freely and generously given of their own stuff to meet the needs of others. Submission is modeled by Jesus who said, I am among you as one who serves. Now, our mutual submission also is not a chore, a sacrificial, grumblingly done duty. It is done joyfully, and it is done from a deep respect for and love for Jesus, out of reverence for Christ, the scripture says. Okay, he's not only the model of our submission, he's the context in which we do it. We do it because of him. We do it for him. I submit to my wife as an act of worship. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, train your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, serve your earthly masters as servants of Christ. Masters, treat your slaves well, remembering that you also have a master in heaven. So our mutual submission in whatever context, and you can think of who lives beside you, who you work for, who your fellow students are, who your friends are, our submission to one another is an act of worship. It's one of the ways that we honor and reverence Jesus. So now, finally, we can look at what mutual submission in marriage can look like for wives, you wives, and you husbands. This passage is not a meet halfway passage. Wives this morning, husbands, wives and husbands to be, this text requires us to go all the way, not just halfway. 
It's an extreme word to each spouse to go all out and to die to self. In other words, it challenges challenges us again just with the vows that we made. Marriage is not for the faint of heart. And the reason I think that in our world we have so many unhealthy marriages is because we're really not very good at dying to ourselves and submitting. It's not our natural bent. In nearly all of the marriages of which I'm familiar, where there is significant tension or struggle, and there's not a few, there's some, both people in those contexts often say, if only my spouse were different, if only they were less demanding, or cleaner, or more driven, or understood me better. When he changes, when she changes, then our marriage will improve. Now, what happens in a relationship with both, when both people wait for the other person to change? Who changes? <laughs> and the marriage will either stay where it is or deteriorate even further and get worse. So whether you're a husband or a wife, Ephesians 5 addresses you. And this morning, wives, don't listen to what Ephesians says to your husband and think, I hope he's getting this. Husbands, don't judge your wives today. So here we go. And kids, it absolutely includes me. It certainly does. Thank you for that. And kids, by the way, the big idea in this part of the Bible is this. Moms and dads do what's good for each other because they love Jesus. Moms and dads do what's good for each other because they love Jesus. And he's exactly right. It's for me too. Anytime I preach a sermon to you that I haven't preached to myself first, I'm in trouble. And you can probably tell when those are, by the way. Now, now the text. See in this passage how Paul grounds his instruction to the wife and the husband in terms of the relationship of Christ to us, his church. What is that relationship like? The church submits to Christ, he says, verse 24. And Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 25. And Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, verse 29. And those two things must occur together. Our submitting to Christ and his nourishing and cherishing us. If we submit to Jesus... That is, if our relationship to him is all about obedience, allegiance, our service to him, apart from our being loved by him, then it becomes all about duty for us. It becomes religion. It's cold. It's clinical. There's detachment, even fear, maybe. And if Jesus cherishes us and cares for us and even lays down his life for us, apart from the reality of his lordship and our submission to him, then it becomes about, all about what we can get from Jesus. Blessing, comfort, happiness. And we might get annoyed with him or even abandon him if things become hard or we think he's asking too much of us. So our submission to him without the reality of Jesus' love for us equals lifeless religion. Jesus' love for us without the reality of our submission to his lordship becomes a self-centered Christianity. Both are unhealthy, both are not biblical, and both are rampant in our day. So these twin realities, our submission to him, his love for us, are expressed in Ephesians in the idea of headship. Twice in the book of Ephesians, Paul has talked about the headship of Christ over the church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20, the second half, 
says that God has raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here in the context of Jesus' perfect, infinite authority over all things, says that Jesus is head over all things for the church. And the headship of Jesus implies his authority, his lordship, his rule, and the submission of the church uh, the submission of the church to him is our recognition that Jesus is Lord of all. Paul talks about headship also in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, talking about our growth into maturity. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are, the church is, to grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So here, Jesus is the head of the body, the church, and gives the church life, holds it together, sustains it, helps it to grow up in health. So the marriage of Christ and the church is such a beautiful picture in Ephesians, combining the headship of authority and the headship of being a life-giving head. Jesus says to the church, I love you, I adore you, I cherish and care for you, and even give myself up to death for the sake of what is good for you. And the church says to Jesus, I love you too. I gladly submit to you, for you are my Lord. It is a joy to submit to you, because I know that all that you ask of me is always only for my good, because you cherish me. And it's in that framework that Ephesians says, wives, husbands, that's how it's done. That's what it looks like. Wives, verse 22, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, that's a potentially hard word and, uh, and has been the source of some resistance over time. And you know what? It is a hard word if it's divorced from a husband's cherishing and giving himself up for his wife. And if it's divorced from the biblical affirmation of the equality of the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female in Christ. In other words, race is no basis for separation. Social economic status is no basis for separation. There's unity in Christ. Gender is no basis for separation. There is a fundamental equality. And apart from that understanding, the word submission becomes a hard word. But in the context of a fundamental equality, God has arranged responsibilities and roles, and God has given the responsibility and headship in marriage to the husband, just as Christ has responsibility and authority for the church. There are some who have tried to argue that the authority of the husband over the wife is either cultural, reflective of the time in which Paul is writing, but not reflective of our day, or that it's a consequence of humanity's fall into sin and as such is something to be overcome, like other consequences of the fall. 
But here in Ephesians, Paul parallels the authority of the husband over the wife with the authority of Christ over the church. And in two other places, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, if you ever want to read it, Paul grounds his discussion there of the authority of the husband over the wife. The, uh, he grounds it in God's original creation. So it seems to be a timeless thing. And it appears to me that at the end of the day, when the husband and the wife stand before God, the wife will not bear responsibility for the husband and the family. But the husband will bear responsibility for his wife and family. And any husband worth his salt will, in any given scenario, talk lots with his wife, seek her counsel and her wisdom, and together make decisions. But in the event that after all of that, there is still a gap, I think biblically that the wife submits to her husband and says, you know what, okay, the decision is yours, and with it, the responsibility is yours. So wives, let me ask you this this morning. Well, first I'll ask this, because this is the context. In your submission to Jesus, wives, in acknowledging his lordship over you, in surrendering yourself to him, do you have any idea how loved you are by him? Do you have any idea the nature of the heart of the one to whom you have given yourself in submission? Cherishes you. Desires to nurture and nourish you. Laid himself down for you. And, if pressed, would do it all again. The one to whom you are submitting is one who is so eternally and fundamentally committed to your good that to submit to a Lord like that is fullness of life, truly. Wives, do you have any idea how much you are loved by your Lord? I'm going to ask you about your husbands in a moment. But husbands, a word to you first. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the very same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, in some ways, husbands, I think that this can actually be the harder word. I wonder if what is being asked of us is more difficult than what is being asked of the wife. Now, wives, you might think differently. I don't know. But leadership is servanthood. Headship is exercise not for oneself, but for one for another. And the call for us as husbands is to lay ourselves down to the point of death for our wives. The husband is told three times in this passage, verse 25, verse 28, verse 33, to love his wife. And three times in this passage, we're pointed to Christ as the example for what that looks like. 
So husbands, here's my question for you. In your relationship with your wife, are you compelled in all of your dealings with her to love her by giving yourself up for her? Yes, we say in a very manly way. I would die for her. And we would probably. But would we give up an evening for her? Will we, will we consider her in all of our decisions about time and money, leisure? Do we know our wives well enough to know what will build life into her and will we devote ourselves to that? Okay, we know how to provide for her and how to protect our wives and families. Do we know how to cherish them? Do we know how to nurture them? Do we know how to help them to flourish? You come home from work and you just want to, uh, it's been a long day. I want to decompress with the TV or the Nintendo or the newspaper. Well, I'll tell you what. Your wife maybe has been home all day with the kids or has been at work herself. And a significant gift that you can give to her is a few minutes of your, t- of your conversation so that she can decompress and know that you are interested in her day. So you give yourself up and you decompress 30 minutes later and she is loved. There is a final word that sums up mutual submission in verse 33. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, if I am not loving my wife, I am not loving God. It's that simple. Ah, what if they don't deserve it? Do it anyway. In wives, another danger is the perception that love should be unconditional, but respect should be earned. Well, if that was true, then the husband would be on the hook twice. He'd have to give love and he'd have to earn respect. Where the wife wouldn't have to earn love or give respect unless it was deserved. But that's not how it works. Can a wife respect a husband even when she doesn't feel respectful? Or when his character and conduct has earned her disrespect? Yes, she can. Does that make her a hypocrite? No. It makes her obedient to God. You can always treat someone with respect. And that's all of us. We can always treat someone with respect, even if we don't feel respect for them. And it's a pretty rare occasion, I think, when the wife can think of nothing at all that she can legitimately say she respects about her husband. Can a husband love his wife if he feels only unloving toward her and has been treated badly by her? Yes. And in fact, that's when it's most necessary. If you're in conflict, love her. Hear her. Reach out to her. Listen to her. Give her a gift of time or of service or an embrace. When you're in conflict, husbands and wives, having a fight or if your marriage has been cold for some time, I'm willing to bet that the husband either feels disrespected or the wife is feeling unloved, or both. But I'm also willing to bet this morning that both of you really do desire a strong marriage, that you really do love your spouse and really meant your marriage vows and mean them now. You're just not always sure why you struggle sometimes. This idea of mutual submission and loving and respecting is not a magic pill that makes all troubles go away. But I think that if husbands make it a practice to sacrifice themselves for the sake of making their wives feel loved, 
And if wives intentionally related to their husbands so that they felt respected, even in disagreement, and husbands and wives did this not in order to change the other person or get what you want from them, but out of reverence for Christ, it would revolutionize the marriage relationship. Wives, no matter what, let your husband know that you respect him and tell him what you respect about him. Husbands, no matter what, let your wives know that they are not only loved, but securely loved. Wives, don't listen to the instruction to your husband and think, I hope my husband is listening. Or see, if my husband would only be like that, things would be better. Don't ignore what the text says to you. Respect your husband, affirm him, pray for him. What can you think of in your husband that you respect? Tell him about it. In what area may you have found yourself resisting, protecting your own want or your own way? I counsel you to submit as an act of love to your husband and an act of worship to Christ. Husbands, don't you think this morning, if only my wife would submit and give me some respect, then marriage and family would be so much better. We listen to what the text says to us. Love her. Lay yourself down for her. Okay, what gives her life? What does she need in order to flourish and to have joy? Make it your commitment to give that to her. When what you want and what is good for her conflict, always make the call on the side of what is good for her. Always. If you come home tired from work, your wife wants to talk, she's tired too. Suck it up. Talk. Just for a few minutes. In a healthy marriage, both sides submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Bottom line is this. In marriage, the other person is number one. I'm going to say amen. And I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And as we sing, um, there's some baskets here. As we sing, I'm going to invite those of you who want to to come up and pick a card from the basket. There's a basket for husbands. If you are a husband, there's a basket here with blue paper in it. How's that for stereotyping? Inside this basket are a series of folded cards. Each card has two action items on it, and you have to pick, or you get to pick, one of them to do this week. Okay? Um, there's, there's eight or ten different actions. This card, for example, says, thank or compliment your spouse at least once every day. Or take your wife to a hotel one night. So you get to pick one of those and do it. I'll shuffle it in. Somebody's going to say, hotel, compliment, no way. I'm going to... Right. Wives, pink. That's so traditional. Here's an example of yours. Sit down and listen to your husband. Ask him how, he can, how you can help him fulfill the dreams he has for his life. Okay. And then whatever it is, maybe you can do it. Or what does your husband enjoy? What renews and refreshes him? Arrange for him to have that this week. So, wives. There's some much simpler ones in there than that, by the way. And if you are not married, this color, this green, 
Uh, there's a bunch of different ones in here for you because mutual submission, as we said at the beginning, is for all of our relationships. And you have a context to practice this as well. Think of someone about whom there is something you appreciate. Phone or tell or write them why you appreciate them. You'll have an opportunity to buy lunch for someone in this basket. So there you go. So wives and husbands and single people, a chance to practice submitting to one another. For you adventurous ones, you don't know what you're getting. And what I'd like to do is hear from you or give, we'll have a chance in the service next week to talk about what you did and, uh, and what it was like for you. So there you go. Uh, I'm going to close now in a time of prayer.